Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We have a new Retire Sooner Facebook group. You might have heard about it. It's full of people maybe like you that are thinking about, hey, how do I retire a little bit earlier in this in this world that we live in? There's so many moving parts to make that a reality. It helps to get advice from lots of people. So we launched a group a couple of months ago. It already has over 600 folks that care about and think about retiring sooner. And we recently asked these folks to throw their money questions at us and I'll answer them right here on the Retire Sooner podcast. And our team thought it'd be a great way to start off or kick off season two of the podcast. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. It is exciting to be back in the studio. There's just something about being in the studio and having the team here, Mallory's here, Marissa's here. Uh, we, we've got uh, an expanded Retire Sooner podcast group. We hired a guy from California I've worked with for a decade. His name's Ryan Doolittle. Ironically, his last name, he does a lot. Uh, it, I always think about last names because we think about our forefather. I think about going to Colonial Williamsburg as a kid. And you learn when you're in like third grade that the Coopers, it used to be a Cooper, which is a popular name in the United States, they they were barrel makers. So everyone that was descended his last name Cooper, somebody in their lineage made wooden barrels. So and I, I always think about that when I talk to Ryan Doolittle. I'm thinking, what is it? What did Doolittle's ancestors really do? So We've had people that have been helping with the Retire Sooner podcast that have, d- have really jumped in, like James Lewis, who we call the colonel of all content. And then Jeff Lloyd, who is now our king of content for Retire Sooner podcast, and some of the live radio we do. So we've expanded the team through our off-season. And just like any other show, you can't do a show every single week for the end of, till the end of eternity. I think about Yellowstone, like, they got to film a couple episodes, and look, we're, we are no Yellowstone. For the record, I, I think I've spoke very highly early on about Yellowstone, and now it's become the biggest show in America, if you have Paramount+. Plus, or I think I actually watch it on the country, CMT, Country Music Channel, without even having to have Paramount+. Plus. Some, some, from some way, I get to see Yellowstone without subscribing to Paramount+. Plus. But you do a batch of episodes. You got to put your heart and soul into it to make sure it's worth listening to. And then there's an off-season. You regroup, you, you re-strengthen the team, you figure out what we need to do better and new. We get a whole new list of who do we want to go talk to in this world? What are the topics that matter to the Retire Sooner listener base? What do people care about? What do people want to know? And how can we help people with the right topics and the right guests? And that's what the off-season is all about. 
So I'm very excited to be back. During that off-season, like most of America, and this is old news now, but during the past holiday season, part of the time I was off from RSP, Retired Senior Podcast, the whole Moss family had COVID. You know, we had just, like most of America, at, during, I think it was the Tuesday or Wednesday before, uh, the Tuesday or Wednesday before Christmas, I ended up getting COVID. The next day, Lynn felt sick. She ended up with COVID. The kids had COVID. So just, and, and that was also during when the vast majority, when millions and millions of Americans were getting COVID during that holiday window. It's calmed down, obviously, a little bit, but everyone's fine and we're happy to be through it. So we had a COVID Christmas, like probably millions of other Americans. Being in the state of Georgia, it's been an exciting time because our own hometown, Georgia Bulldogs, and I didn't go to school at UGA. I went to University of North Carolina, but the Bulldogs won the national championship. Very big deal. My kids were up till like two in the morning. They were so excited. We almost made it a holiday the next day in school. We let the kids go in late that next day. It was mostly for us. Not them. I'm trying to think what else happened during the retire sooner off season. And Mallory wanted me to tell some stories about kids and whether, and I realize that nobody wants to hear about my kids and their sports league. So I'll go into maybe more of a family story. <laughs> my kids made it to the playoffs with NYO basketball. No one wants to hear that. But here's something that maybe I think everybody can relate to is that. You know, and, and this actually relates to retire sooner research is that um, I would call, I would, this is about family. So I, I call my mom, I, I would call my mom mo mostly a happy retiree, but she would be more of a happy retiree if more of us live together. And she lives in Pennsylvania. So I grew up in Pennsylvania, Southeast Pennsylvania, kind of near the Amish country, Lancaster, PA. My mom now lives in Westchester, PA. And my little sister lives there close by, but three of her other kids, so three out of the four, live in other parts of the country. The brother that's closest in age to me also lives here in Atlanta, and I'm the oldest of four, but Brandon lives here, and then Kip, my younger brother, moved to Los Angeles for his residency as an orthopedic surgeon, and he works at UCLA hospitals now, and he is on the West Coast. So, we have this family where we're, we're a close family. And my dad, by the way, lives, my parents are divorced and he lives in Southeastern Pennsylvania too. But as a family, we're pretty spread out. And my mom is going through a little bit of a tough time because she's real active. She's a tennis player, avid tennis player. Again, happy retiree trait. But she's got a bad knee. And it's a big it's been a big topic of conversation for her ultimately to decide to get a knee replacement. She'd go back to activity. Ironically, it's what my little brother does for a living. So he, he does knee replacements for a living. So he's a pretty good guy to talk to around this. My mother-in-law, Rita, has gotten a knee replacement. So topic of Thanksgiving when they were all together, it was all about new knees. I'm going to get a new knee. Rita, how did it go? It went great. I might be so great. Now I can walk and do all the things I couldn't do. My, my mom's excited about her new knee, but she's in that gloomy phase of knee surgeries right around the corner. Well, what does that mean? Well, once you get the knee replacement, you ain't playing tennis. You're not going running, biking, hiking, walking, the ings. And her kids 
three or four of them have other family, lots of, we, we all have a bunch of kids. We're in different states. So we're not there 24 seven to really take care of her. My little sister who's near there, she's got two little kids. So you have this pretty typical family situation where a parent's going through something and we'd all love to be there, but we're, we're not. I have four little kids all in the middle of school. My brother here in Atlanta has three little kids. Kip in California has two babies. So we're all just trying to manage life. And here is my poor mom going through this period of time thinking, I'm not going to be able to play tennis for months. It's the winter. It's gloomy in Pennsylvania. It's cold. It's just not a great time. So she's going through a little bit of a rough time. And like a lot of families, we end up getting this multi-sibling text from mom about all of her children that just don't care about her. And I'm just going to read this text. It's been a, it's been a rough time the last few months. Uh, I spent most of my life taking care of you guys and taking care of my mother and all of my exes. I'm not making this up. This is verbatim. I feel on an island by myself right now, and it sucks. I certainly don't want to interfere with your life. I know everyone's super busy, and you all have so many kids, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of time for me. It's very sad. Of course, I love you all very much. Now, if you've got a big family, it's not that rare to get one of these texts, right? Somebody's always feeling left out. And I'm pretty empathetic to this one. In fact, there was an earlier text a month ago and I was the only sibling left off of it. So I actually felt a little left out. I was the only one that wasn't getting scorned or scolded for not paying attention to my mom because I do talk to my mom pretty frequently. At least, let's say twice a week, I talk to my mom, make a point to call her text her and, and communicate with her because I know it is she's going into a little bit of a gloomy time she's got to get her knee replaced but Kip who does this for a living is like look I, I do this every day you're going to be walking same day within a couple of weeks you're going to be able to go on long walks and before long you're going to be back to playing tennis and the skies are going to open so this is a good thing so how do you respond to a text like this here my response is pretty simple I said mom I love you and I think you just wrote the intro to the next great country music song classic. And then the rest is history. Siblings back and forth, making light of this. Wow, it does sound like a country music song. Taking care of all you guys, taking care of my mom, taking care of all of my exes. I mean, come on. It's like right out of a George Strait song. There actually is a song called All My Exes Live in Texas. So immediately I thought, Ben, my oldest, who's 14, who's a guitar player, <laughs> we were, we're playing music together. And I said, let's just, let's make a country music song out of your grandmother's text today, which is exactly what we did. Keep in mind, I only started playing guitar maybe a year or two ago because my son does. And it's kind of accelerated in the last couple months. And taking some time off, I did play a lot of guitar over the holidays. And once you start getting chords down, it starts to be a lot more fun. So it's kind of been this 
big acceleration in guitar for me. And Ben is so good. He's very, very good guitar player. It's really fun to play with him because even though I don't really play all that well, when you play with him, it makes it sound a lot better. And again, I'm not even a real singer. I'm more of like a backup singer and I'll sing in a group. I'm not Chris Stapleton or Zach Brown, but I do love country music. And Mallory's forced me to play a clip of the song. Do not judge. Remember, I don't really play guitar and I definitely don't sing. But here it is. It's been a rough time these last few months, and I've spent most of my life taking care of you guys. And my mother and my ex. So it's hard to know what to do exactly when mom reaches out and says, gosh, you guys just aren't communicating. How many times a week can we call? And I, it's just tough. And I think as siblings, we, we thought, mom, you're going to be okay. And we're going to do everything we can to support you through it. It's going to be okay. So acknowledging that she's in a rough place, it actually went over really well. So our family was laughing. And the next day, my mom called and she was laughing and appreciative that we wrote a song just for her. Even one of her best friends, who's also helping her go through this knee surgery, she loved the fact that we wrote a country music song for our mom and that mom loved it and was really appreciative and it made her smile. The very fact that I would open up with a family story just goes to show how important all of these different dynamics have to do with being happy in retirement. We have a whole chapter in what in my latest book, What the Happiest Retirees Know, around family and the proximity to family. Ultimately, it's our goal to get most of the family members in the same city. That's really what we would, would like, but it's just not that easy to do. So we started today with a little bit of family retirement type planning. Now we're going to transition into helping answer some of the exact verbatim questions that have been coming through the Retire Sooner Facebook group. So let's start there. Okay, so we're, I'm going to go ahead and read these questions. And I think it's actually better for Mallory to read the questions. So we're going to bring in Mallory. Hey, guys. Lo longtime producer to read these questions. So excited to Are be here. Are you able to do this? Yes. Are you worried about getting hate mail? I, you know, I'm a little worried about getting some hate <laughs> mail. Fun fact, we, uh, we got a very strongly worded letter about my... Uh, the podcast that I did with Dan Abramowitz about transitioning and, and dealing with the unexpected. Apparently, apparently. So I read the email. Yeah. And it's pretty brutal. Oh, it was it be, it's addressed, I think, to me. And it said, who is this bimbo? Oh. Who oh. is the bimbo oh. at, 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 cutting people off 
um, not respecting elders. Oh, Me- oh. Meanwhile, don't you? It, my favorite is like they were very upset with me and thought that I was incredibly ageist because I ageist. yes because I shared the story about my grandfather accidentally bumping into someone in town with his car. I really probably should have clarified he was about ninety two at the time, and I will stand by my statement. He did not need to be driving anymore. Okay, so ageist. Ah, so ageist. Oh, God bless. But um, no, Listen, I think my well, favorite part too. I was actually standing on the side of Kennesaw Mountain, like doing like a little hike when I finally actually read that email, and I was like, ooh, it was a long it was email. So long. I was like, well, at least I'm in a pretty place and enjoying being outside. By the well, way, who uses the word bimbo anymore? I don't know, but I, it's a very I do non-current now. slur. It is. It's not current. Uh, you can, that sounds very ageist of you. Yeah, it is. Um. It's probably somebody's <laughs> super old. By the way. Oh God bless. Now I will say, probably my favorite way that I refer to myself now, though. So. <laughs> Cancel culture is strong. Oh, well. All right, so let's go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you ask these. Listen, you know Clark Howard does this thing called Clark Stinks, and he reads his own hate mail. So, oh, yes, so he I does. guess maybe I'm sure we'll get lots of hate mail now that we've told this story. <laughs> so you can, so maybe we'll do that if we get some good ones. Uh, anyway, all right, let's go into. Look, please ask these questions, and I'll just do my very best to answer them. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I just want to jump in and just say really quick too. I love the Facebook group that we have on there. The community that is on there is just really supportive and wonderful. And one of the things that I love, the first question we're going to start with, we actually had a few other people in the group who jumped in to sort of help add some some context around what this guy had asked and add and try and add a little bit of color um, and their thoughts. So it's just such a really wonderful um, community. So if you haven't joined it yet, I would highly recommend you do. So we're going to start with Greg Gresham. He was sweet enough to write in for us and he asked, should I convert 401k or IRA funds to Roth funds while working? And there are a couple of answers within the community. So the community is helping each other. One of the responses is I Hey, Greg, I agree that this is an important question. The majority of my next e- nest egg is tax deferred and a minority is Roth within approximately 10 years before retirement. I'm pondering doing Roth conversions as well. Really kind of saying, look, this is a this is an interesting topic and it's important because the the overarching question, why is first of all, why is this important for you listening? And that is that we would all rather, if you could ma- wave a magic wand, the, the best place the best type of account you could have money in would would probably be almost always a Roth because it's it's got everything you need. It's got tax deferred growth. It's got, and then when, when the money comes out, it's tax free. So you put, there's a famous story about Peter Thiel, the famous technology investor. And I believe he put, a, I don't know, a couple thousand shares of, I think it was PayPal in his Roth IRA. Wasn't worth a whole lot. And then PayPal became a multi-billion dollar company and it became this the story of the five billion dollar Roth. Well, technically, that whole five billion dollars is tax free as he takes it out. Now, there's talk about Congress changing the rules and targeting people with giant, multi hundred million or billion dollar Roth accounts. But as the rules stand in early 2022, whatever you put in a Roth comes out tax free. Now, one of the very biggest assets in the United States is 401k money. Most companies have 401k plans. Most people here at early age at least put this on autopilot, start saving money. So we end up in America, it's real common to end up with big 401k balances. And that's great too. The only downside to that is that when you pull money out of a 401k, it's fully taxed as if it were ordinary income. 
when you get to 72 in, in America, as the rules stand now, you have to do what's called a required minimum distribution out of those IRAs, roughly 3.6%. If you're no longer working and you're 72, you got to pull the money out to then, which creates a taxable event, which means you have to pay money every year to the IRS. Required minimum distributions. The Roth doesn't require a minimum distribution. So again, another wonderful trait of a Roth. So naturally, you think about all the pros of a Roth and the seemingly negatives of a regular IRA or 401k, which essentially have mostly the same rules. It's a really smart thing to think, oh, I'd love to just get all this money over here in the IRA 401k bucket and get it over to the Roth bucket. Makes total sense. The only problem with doing so is the very mechanics of taking money out to get it into the Roth creates a tax issue. And, it's, and it can be a big tax issue. To give you an extreme example, you have a million dollars in an IRA or a 401k and you, and, and you convert a whole, take the whole million, you put it in a Roth. You can do it. You're allowed to do it. Problem is your income would go up by a million dollars. So whatever your current income is, let's say you're working and you're making $100,000. Now, all of a sudden, you have $1.1 million in income. Your tax bracket goes through the roof. So the cost to get those funds into the Roth might be 40 plus percent, depending on where you live. If you're in California, it'd probably be over 50%. So there's a significant toll you got to pay to get money from an IRA or a 401k, in most cases. Now, there's some, also, I'm going to couch this. There's some nuanced rules about how to convert 401k money if you don't have any other IRA money and if it's after tax inside of 401k. Those are all very nuanced rules. What I'm talking about here is if the, the most common or base case, which is, hey, a lot of money, 401k, want to get it to a Roth. What's the right call? And the answer comes down to, to thinking about this first, which is taxes today versus taxes tomorrow. Naturally, think about what normally happens. You're, you're in your 50s or 60s and you're getting into your highest earning years and you've got your highest 401k balances. Now you start thinking about taxes. You're making 200 grand a year and you got this giant 401k and you want to convert it. Well, now all of a sudden to do anything really meaningful beyond, hey, I'm going to take 10 grand from my IRA and put it in a Roth or 10 grand from my 401k and convert it. To do something meaningful might really raise your tax bracket a lot. 200 grand in income already puts you in a fairly high bracket. Put in another 100 or 200 grand in an IRA or 401k to Roth conversion. Now you get another couple hundred grand in income. Now all of a sudden you're in the highest bracket. But if you were to fast forward five years when you're no longer working and you already have relatively low wage income, and maybe you just have Social Security, and you still don't have to hit these RMDs because you're only 65, so you don't have to take money out. It's not uncommon for a retiree to go from a super high tax bracket while they're working, high earning, to a really low tax bracket when they're in retirement. So you're starting to see the problem here. Why would I want to convert my retirement money at 40% toll to get into a Roth, when in a year or two, if you stop working and your income comes way down, maybe you're only in the 15% tax bracket. So why convert at a 40% toll? Remember, the Roth is 0% tax when it comes out of the Roth. 
provided all the other rules are followed. But to pay 40% into it when you could have just left it in a 401k or an IRA and paid 15 or 10 if you're in a really low bracket, that's actually a tax tsunami for you. In fact, it could be, it's actually a, a party for the IRS. Hey, go ahead, convert. No wonder they made it really easy for, there used to be this income limitation. You couldn't convert into a Roth it just, unless you made a certain amount of money. But then they, they looked at each other and they said, well, wait a minute, it's a good thing for people to convert. Like, let everybody do it. Because let's take their IRA money that we don't, we, we, we get this tiny amount out when people have to do RMDs. Let, let people convert a lot because then they can collect lots of taxes. So it's a tax party for the IRS and it's a tax tsunami for you. So for the majority of folks that, that I sit down with and Ed Slot, you can go back to an early retire sooner podcast for this. He's he's kind of an, a Roth IRA purist. He believes that everybody should get every amount of money into a Roth as soon as you possibly can. In the real world, most of the time, even people with lots of savings, million, two million, five million dollars, they end up being in a much lower tax bracket in the future. So taxes today, if I convert it 40% toll, doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's a really long break even or maybe a never break even if my future tax rate is 10 or 15. Now, if I'm in a flat today versus tomorrow tax bracket, the Roth conversion starts to maybe make some sense. When it makes a lot of sense is if you're in, let's say the 15% bracket today, you can convert pieces of the Roth. Maybe it is 10, 20, $30,000 enough so that your tax bracket doesn't rise too much, you do it in a measured way, and that you know in the future, maybe you have a pension that's gonna kick in and you and your spouse have social security and you've got some big rental income. Maybe your future tax bracket will be higher than it is today. So maybe today you're in the 15 and in the future, taxes tomorrow will be at 20 or 25 or 30%. That's a scenario where it really does start to make a lot of sense to be converting IRA money into Roth. Now, everyone's different. It's a very complicated question to get right or answer to get right per individual because think about all the different variables we talked about. It really takes some financial planning to figure out how long it will take you to break even to make that Roth conversion. But if you remember this, taxes today versus taxes tomorrow, it solves a really big part of this entire conversation. If you are in the camp where your taxes may be flat from today, taxes tomorrow, or higher versus today versus tomorrow, or higher in the future than they are today, then you might be a really good candidate to do a Roth conversion. Question is, how much do you convert in any given year? You don't want to just do the entire amount one year, typically. Typically, a phased, scaled conversion over several years is the answer. And even Ed Slot would probably agree with that. That's something that you really do want to either find a Roth calculator online or go more in depth with, with your financial advisor somewhere, wherever you work, whoever you work with in the country, kind of get in the weeds and make sure a conversion makes sense for you and how much to convert in any given time. Something the Money Matters team, something the Retire Sooner team does all the time. We do a couple of these every single week. Of course, we'd be happy to help as well. And thank you to Greg for that question. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next question comes from Jonathan Mallory. Yeah, yeah. So Jonathan wrote into us, and this one's a little lengthy. He asks, how does the 4% plus rule operate with a diversified income portfolio consisting of high yield bonds, both domestic and international, convertibles, preferreds, REITs, real estate investment trusts, MLPs, dividend funds, and regular bonds, both domestic and international? It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. So let me simplify this one first. How you sp- really, what I think Jonathan's asking is how are, you, how are you supposed to diversify a portfolio while still using the 4% rule? And really, 4% plus rule is what he's asking about. First of all, I'm going to start out and say there's no perfect answer to his question. But I think I can get close. Remember, one of the fundamental tenets of the 4% plus rule, and if you're new to this rule, think of it this way. Financial planning is always trying to solve for what's the most or maximum I can take out from my portfolio every single year till the end of time before it runs out. And there's a lot of different opinions on how much people can safely take out over time. And every year there's another hit piece on the 4% rule that says interest rates are so low, there's no way you can do 4%. But really the godfather of this entire rule, William Bengen, who was at MIT, aeronautics engineer, smart guy turned financial planner, originated this rule just using market history and mechanically just said, what if I take 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6% and I have a balanced portfolio of half in bonds, half in stocks, 60% bonds, 40% stocks, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and all these different iterations went back over the course of history over 100 years of market data essentially and did the math and found probabilities on kind of getting to that maximum spot of how much can I pull out every single year without it failing and running out in a short period of time. So the four, the original 4% rule essentially said you can take 4% of your money plus inflation every year over time and you have an, call it an 80 to 90 plus percent chance of your money lasting 50 plus year, 50 years plus, meaning that it should easily last for your whole retirement. And you get to use it. Of course, if you take 1% from your money, then it should easily last 100 years. 100 divided by 1 is 100, even without any growth. So the 4% plus rule was William Bengen coming back to the table 30 years after his original 4% rule, which became kind of the industry standard in financial planning, and said, you know, if I add in some small caps and not just large cap stocks, then there's a good argument to be made that you could actually take 4.5% a year. Remember, this is just a guide. It's one of these rules of thumb that is is really helpful, but it's not a carved in stone. I'm going to take exactly 4.25% of my original retirement portfolio value and ratchet it up for whatever inflation is every single year perfectly until the end of time. We know that we go through really rough markets. You might cool down your spending. You want to take a little less. 
we know if we go through really great periods of time and low inflation, high market returns, like we saw after World War II, you do the math on those time periods, you could almost end up with exponential amounts of money, mathematically, based on history. Where historically, if you retire in periods of time with really high inflation and low market returns, using the 4% or 4% plus rule verbatim without any adjustments from year to year, money tends to run out a lot sooner. And it's just math. So the 4% plus rule is a really important guide that will work for most of the people most of the time, provided you think of it as a dynamic way to understand just how much you can pull out of your portfolio in any given year. The other really important part of that rule is based on making sure you have at least at least 50% of your portfolio in equities. Because as we all know, over the course of market history, that's the real value generator. Not only do we get dividends from equities, we get growth over time historically. So the rule rests upon having at least 50% of your portfolio in equities all the way up to 70% of your portfolio in equities. Again, that's the driver of being able to continue to ratchet up your spending from your portfolio because hopefully your portfolio is itself growing, which is fundamental to investing to begin with, protecting your purchasing power, meaning protecting your spending power as inflation goes higher. So can your spending because the nest egg gets bigger. And I think this question, though, from Jonathan goes back to, okay, I get it. I get the equity part. I got to have 50% in stocks. Got to have 70% in stocks, at least in that window. But what about the other remaining part of the portfolio? The way we've run this, that Bengen ran it this way, and our team, the Retired Sooner team, redid this study for Bengen many years ago. We did it again last year, and then we even did it again with the 4.5% test. So we did it for 4%, then we did it for 4.5%. And for the non-equity or non-stock side of the equation, we just use the overall, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, which is mostly just government bonds and some corporates. Doesn't really include a whole lot of high yield. So the question here is asking about all these other asset classes, REITs, MLPs, dividend stocks, international equities. And my answer to this would be that all of those, at least in my opinion, belong to the risk category, period. REITs, sure, they're their own category, but they have just as much risk as equity. So they need to be part of the equity allocation. MLPs, those are energy pipeline companies. Again, yes, they're very much for income, but they're just as volatile or risky as any other stock and sometimes even more. Dividend funds. Well, dividend funds are just a derivative of equity investing. So that's part of the 50%, 50 to 70% we all need in order to follow this rule. International, same thing. International stocks, which for most diversified portfolios make some real sense, absolutely goes in the 50% to 70% category. That's all equity-like risk. Jonathan even asked about convertibles or convertible bonds. Those are somewhere in the middle. They're not as volatile as the general stock market, but they're also not as placid as government bonds. So they're somewhere in the middle. Same with preferreds or preferred stocks that act a lot like long-term bonds. There's some volatility in those. 
I think the fundamental principle here that matters is risk assets versus safety assets that don't go down during market corrections. During big market corrections, of course, stocks go down, but most of these other risk categories do too. Pretty rare that the market's down 20% and REITs are up. Pretty rare for the market to be down 20% and MLPs are up. They kind of march to a similar drum as stocks in general. So I wouldn't be utilizing high-yield bonds. I wouldn't be using emerging market bonds. I wouldn't be using convertible bonds as part of my 30 to 50% that's on the safety side of your overall portfolio allocation when you're trying to use the 4% plus rule. Jonathan, really smart question. Mallory, I'm glad we answered that one. What's next, Mallory? So next, we actually have somebody who, off of the Facebook group, we thought we would also remind people, you can always reach us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. Um, we had Sarah actually write in to us in an email on our contact form, and she said, Wes, I read your article on the dry powder principle. It says to have at least three years of dry powder in your portfolio, but why three years? Should it ever be more? Should it ever be less? She, I think, just wanted a better understanding of the reasoning around that. Sarah, really good question. And there is some methodology to why we came up with this number. We didn't just pull that out of the hat. And I think that the, the dry powder principle, first of all, is a way of helping you psychologically get through the inevitable market drawdowns that we're going to go through. If you go back and look at the year of 2021, really ever since the COVID crash in 2020, the markets recovered almost straight up, almost like an escalator for two years. And then when we started 2022, wham, markets got hit really significantly. And, and I think investors quickly were reminded that markets go up, but they also go down. And when that happens, it, this natural reaction to say, it's time to get out. I want to sell. I want to get, get kind of run to safety. And the dry powder principle is a really important thing for you to understand to help you not just run for the hills and stay a long-term investor. The dry powder principle pretty simply says, as long as you have three years worth of dry powder, and dry powder means that if you look at all of your cash and anything that's in the safety category, bonds count as well, we want that total makeup of your overall liquid retirement money to be able to cover at least three years worth of your spending. The reason we picked three years, so first of all, think about what that can, how that can help you psychologically. When we go through a 10 or 20% market correction, as opposed to focusing on the portion of your portfolio that's going down, it's nice to be able to point to a portion of the portfolio that's staying flat, maybe even rising in value, and knowing that that's where your spending money is going to come from which gets me to the three years. So if you go back over, let's go back 100 years and look at all significant market corrections and bear markets, we can do the math and we can figure out how long it takes for the market itself to recover. And again, remember during that period of time, whether it's a year or two or three or five or six, your dry powder is what you can spend while you allow your, the other side of the portfolio, the, the riskier side, to recover. So we look at the average time it takes for the market to recover from these big drawdowns. The average time it takes 2.6 years. Now the median is much shorter than that. So more often than not, the market recovers within about a year, which is even shorter. 
There are a few times that it took really long to recover. If you go back to the depression and those skew the numbers higher. But on average, it takes a little less than three years, most of the time, for markets to recover. That's why we use that number three. Three years worth of dry powder or safety assets, cash, bonds, treasury, corporate, government bonds, municipal bonds, worth of spending money. Meaning that if you need to pull $50,000 from your portfolio per year to supplement your overall income, and you have $400,000 worth of dry powder, you would have eight years worth of dry powder, way beyond the three that we say is a bare minimum, which can give you this great peace of mind when you're doing your overall investment planning and we go through these rough market patches. If you need $60,000 a year for your portfolio and only 150 of it is in dry powder, then you're short of that three. You'd have about two and a half years worth of spending money. For most people, that's not enough. For some people, it's plenty. It's fine. But for most investors, at least what I've seen in practice, it doesn't, the peace of mind doesn't really start to kick in until you have at least that three. And it's okay to have beyond three years worth of dry powder. Now, we don't want to do this in complete exclusion of having risk assets either. So this is a balancing act. We do know that over time, our typically our very most effective weapon to protect our purchasing power is to invest in equities and to collect dividends. This is such an important tool. And when I sit down with families that I've worked with for many years and they're nervous about market corrections, I will immediately go to, hey, let's calculate your dry powder. The minute you do a calculation and you figure out someone that, that, that is worried about market corrections, the minute you say, you know, look, Dave and Denise, you've got nine and a half years worth of dry powder. Well, let's not worry about the current market drawdown. The sigh of relief is so significant that we started to implement this dry powder calculation or dry powder principle in almost everything we do. We even have an online calculator for anyone who wants to use it right on our website. So you can go to yourwealth.com or you can go to westmoss.com, either one under the calculators or tools section and just do a quick dry powder calculation. It'll ask your total spending need, subtract out the mostly guaranteed sources like social security pension, minus your portfolio income. This is where it gets a little more complicated. Gives you the amount you need to solve for your income gap. Multiply that by three. That's your minimum amount of dry powder. The calculator then also helps you figure out how much overall dry powder you have in your portfolio. So it's a really quick, easy to use tool on the website. I think it's really helpful for people to just go through that exercise. It takes a couple minutes, but you can find the dry powder calculator right under the tools section at westmoss.com. And if it's something you want to dig into further, of course, the Retire Sooner team would be happy to help. So I love going through these questions. Keep them coming, please. Whether you want to just, whether you want to join the Facebook group and do this via Facebook or go to the website, westmoss.com and just submit a question. There's a contact tab upper right-hand corner. Those questions come straight to our team right here in the studio. And if you've been thinking about something, it's been worrying you or nagging you when it comes to your financial planning or investment planning, 
I promise you, you're not alone. If you're worried about it, there are thousands of other people that are worried about the same thing. But it takes a little bit of bravery to ask. A little bit of, little bit of proactivity to, to reach out for a little bit of help. But the greatest thing I think about financial planning and financial advice is that just a little bit of help goes a really long way. And we're here and we're happy to do that for you. So with that, thank you for tuning in to the Retire Sooner podcast. Again, I'm your host, Wes Moss. Thank you for joining. Share this with your friends. Please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you find the podcast. And so glad that you've tuned in for our brand new season, season two of the Retire Sooner podcast. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.